God speaks to us in his word in Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thanks be to God. All right. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Katie. It's a pleasure to be up here talking to you guys today. And I guess I drew the short straw, Ben, having to get up here and talk about generosity and money. But here's the deal. Uh, It's really important, and it shapes us in so many dramatic ways. And it's hard, but it's something that's worth talking about, and it's worth something. It's, It's worth doing. Um, And, you know, how original that we've asked the guy who used to be a banker to get up here and talk about money today. Um, But I'm going to do my best, and here's the deal. I will undoubtedly say some things today that are going to ruffle a few feathers. I will undoubtedly say some things today that will probably make both you and me uncomfortable. Because the truth is, is that I'm still trying to figure this out. I'm still trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus with my paycheck, with my bank account. And I know many of us are, too. And so... Man, don't, don't see this as discouragement, but really as a charge to evaluate you know, where we are and what it looks like to follow Jesus and be discipled in this way. And a couple of things I also wanna say right up front, and Ben talked about this in our worship and giving time. Look, we are not a church that's after your money. Say that again, we are, we are not a church that's after your money. Jesus is not after your money, he's after your heart, and he taught a lot in relation to people's heart and their possessions and their material wealth. And, you know, unfortunately, we've all seen some really horrible examples from, you know, so-called leaders in the church on what money management looks like. You know, we have teachers who, you know, rob good working people blind, (laughs) for lack of a, a better way to put that, with uh, nothing but an attempt to become rich themselves. And Jesus was never rich. Jesus talked a lot about money, but he never had a lot of material possession. And I think that's a really important distinction of, of what wealth looks like and what wealth can be. And it doesn't always point or equal a bank balance or how much stuff I have. So if I asked you just really quickly, what's in this book? You know, many of us would say, hey, there's a lot of stuff on prayer in here. And you'd be right. There's like 500 verses on prayer. I asked you again, some of you may say faith, and it's true. There are a little less than 500 verses on faith in the Bible. But whenever we talk about verses that directly deal with money and possessions, there are over 2,000 passages that talk about what that looks like and what it should be. Jesus taught on money almost consistently. Out of 38 parables, 16 of them were about money and possessions. In the Gospels, one out of every 10 verse deals directly with the subject of money. 
And this isn't even to mention like all of the reference in the Old and New Testaments regarding God's heart for his people to become generous. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus was teaching today the Google reviews, people would leave this guy? Right? I mean, like, he took us down there. He talked for a long time. We saw some miracles. He fed us with Lunchables somehow. And then he talked a lot about money, two stars. Right? And so why? I hope to dig into that a little bit today. But first, I want to pray for our time together. All right? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we, we thank you for your goodness, for your riches that you have bestowed upon us. We ask today that you would form and shape our hearts, give us ears to hear. Let us not turn off our minds at the mention of money, but instead let us learn and know and guide us and direct us on how we worship you with our money. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I got a picture for you guys up here. Any guesses on how much money that is? If you said $495,600, you're right. And so if you got that right, I'd love to talk to you about a career in banking after we're done. No, just kidding. I had, like I said, I had a long career as a banker. And man, it's a real perspective changer whenever you can really casually hold an entire year's salary in your hand like this, right? When everything that you work for, for those 200 and, or 2,081 hours in a year is reduced to something that's really pretty small. I remember the first time I went into a cash vault. And, you know, this stuff is like secured behind two combination locks that people have different keys to and you open a big door and this particular bank, which is not in Shawnee, by the way, so don't expect to go see this someplace in Shawnee. But there was a false wall with a mirror and you had to have a badge to get in and then there was another code and another key and then two people had to be present at all times. And you get in there and there's like all this cash and it's simultaneously overwhelming and underwhelming all at the same time, right? Because here you are having an Aladdin in the Cave of Wonders experience thinking about how much cash or how much that money could buy you. And really, it's just paper and ink struck together with rubber bands. And the truth is, the secret that I didn't know yet as a banker is this actually represents a ton of work, right? When you get this from the Fed, you have to face it, you have to count it, you have to put it together, you have to band it, two people have to sign off. I mean, it's a ton of work. Whenever we would get a large cash shipment, it was not uncommon for two bankers each to have to spend four hours uh, to do that. And I don't want to go into the specifics. If you want to know how to manage money in a bank, Josh Collier back there is your guy. He's the best at it, best I've ever known. So my experience as a banker showed me some really amazing things, but also some really tragic things. You know, living or seeing people live paycheck to paycheck or people who hoard up their wealth. In both of those cases, by the way, they're a slave to their money. Their money dictates what they do. They don't have much of a say in that. But also, you know, you see the beauty of a single mother who's digging her family out of generational poverty Folks who are giving away to the poor and to the church and making that a priority in their budget, like line item number one, this is what we're gonna do, no compromises. Also had the privilege of helping a lot of people manage their money instead of uh, allowing money to control and manage their lives. Their money telling them what they could do and what they couldn't do. 
And here's the thing, the money is never the point. Like, the money is never, the physical cash is never the point. Your bank balance is never the point. What's really resting on the altar of our life is a worldly desire that's connected to money. That could be security, power, control, comfort, pleasure, profession, lifestyle, you fill in the blank there. And I'm sure you probably already are in your mind, I know I am. It's never really about the paper and the ink. Right now, we worship God with our money by where we put it. It is, it is something, right? But I think where our money goes ultimately tells us more about who we are than how much of it we have. Money may not be your idol, but it will most certainly point you to where you hide them, right? Money, money could be any number of things. But what does Jesus tell us in Matthew 6? He says, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's really interesting that he says treasure, and then he says heart. I think we get that backwards sometimes. It's like, hey, we want to examine our heart, and that'll tell us more about our money. And that's not what Jesus is telling us here. He's saying, follow the money first, and that will lead to a revealing of your heart. Right? I also think that works in the discipleship uh, categorization where it's like, hey, um, this, this weird, wonderful, and crazy thing happens whenever we trust Jesus with our money and we start giving, we see a transformation in our hearts from the inside out. Right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what are we to do? How do we approach possessions and money? Well, right before that in verse 20, Jesus says, lay up, your, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So basically, put your money someplace where it can't be corrupted by this world. And this is not a suggestion. This is a command coming from Jesus. He isn't suggesting an optional way of us viewing money and possessions that you can choose or not can choose, or cannot choose. It's a very strong command here. And Jesus has given us this command, and then he gives us this redirection, which is really beautiful. If you grew up in church like I did, you may have heard a phrase like, uh, you know, uh, treasures in heaven or jewels in your crown, right? You go scrub out the toilet, hey, that's jewels in your crown, you know? You work that all night, youth lock in, man, it's a big old jewel in your crown. Let me tell you, if that's the case, my wife would have just big, huge diamonds all over, right? Just acts of service. I think it's crazy for us to think that doing something difficult would allow us to accumulate physical riches in heaven. That our actions on earth would somehow give us this huge mansion in eternity. The more good you do on earth, the bigger your reward will be but the encouragement here, the in heaven part, is referring to the place where God is. The encouragement is to lay up treasures in God and in his presence, in his kingdom, in his will. Man, that's a, that's a game changer. In other words, Jesus isn't encouraging us to forgo now so that we can have tons of stuff later that glitters, right? To impress all of our friends in heaven. He's inviting us to use our money and possessions now in a way that will actually count the most and the longest into eternity. So how, how do you lay up your riches? 
in heaven. In Matthew 19, the story of the rich young ruler is this passage. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Or, I love this from Frederick Berner, this quote. So the most concrete, practical way to have treasure in heaven is to make the life move of economic divestment for the sake of the investment of the poor. So it becomes less about me and more about loving others. This was radical at the time of Jesus and the early church because pagans were all about hoarding as much as they possibly could. It was really prevalent in Greek culture. Um, Here's another quote from Tim Keller that, that sums up what it was like to live during that time. He said, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. And because of this, Christianity exploded. They were fighting famine and plague, and Christians sometimes were the only ones left inside the walls of the city affected by by sickness. They're caring for the sick, caring for the poor. And what Jesus was doing here when he was talking about you know, giving and, and being less about self, he was connecting back to Old Testament teaching. We've all heard some of these Proverbs. In chapter 10, he says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life and the gain of the wicked to sin. It was really uh, interesting in my research uh, for being with you today. I learned something that I never really had connected the dots on before. And uh, in one of the commentaries I was reading on the Proverbs from a guy named Bruce Waltke, he was talking basically about the idea that righteous and wicked here is not what we assume it is. You know, we, we have associations with those terms. And he said this, the wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. The righteous person is the one who says, much of what I have belongs to the community and not just them. And the wicked person is one who says, no, no, it's all mine and to them and them alone. Man, isn't that interesting? That here in Proverbs, actually what the writer is saying is that righteous could almost equal generous. And that wicked or wickedness is another term for someone who hoards everything to themselves. Hey, most small business owners will tell you that this is a true principle, right? Because they know that the health and wellness of their business actually directly correlates and relates to the health and wellness of the people that they employ and the community that they service, right? You don't have a business or it doesn't last for very long if you're not good to the people who work for you and you're not providing a product and a service to the community that you're embedded in. Most successful small business owners will realize that this passage in Proverbs is true. And so if money has the power to make or break communities, how much even more so does it have to make or break and corrupt our hearts 
And it makes us so shallow and superficial. What do I mean by that? Usually in order to acquire more money, what do we do? We spend more time chasing after our money and less time on the things that actually matter. Also, man, as a banker, I got so caught up in this, the idea that every decision becomes a cost-benefit or a return on investment, an ROI decision. You know, the old phrase, you gotta make money to spend money. Well, then it's like, how much money do I have to spend and how much money am I gonna make? And if those don't add up, I'm not doing it. A practical example of that in our personal relationships is, man, this person that I know, I, I, they, they need discipleship, they need my time, but they just suck the life out of me. Right? I don't get anything back out of that. We get in the habit of applying those type of decisions in our life and lose our way. It seeps into every nook of who we are. And as it turns out, money is a really horrible God. We see in Proverbs 11, riches do not profit on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Now, you're hearing day of wrath there, and you may be thinking judgment, and that's, that's not what this is saying. The day of wrath was a Hebrew term for a really, really, really bad day. A day of sorrow and grief, a day when someone you know has died, you get the news that you feared for a really long time, a day that you were betrayed by someone you really, really trusted, the day you find out that you have a terminal disease. This passage is telling us that wealth is worthless on a day like that, right? You may be able to hire the best lawyer or the best doctor, but on the day of wrath, riches do not profit won't help you in any way face what you're going through. The good news is we have something that does. In Proverbs 18, you've heard this passage time and time again. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Man, just that first verse is a sermon in itself, right? Let me give you a brief rundown of this. Think about this passage in an, in an ancient setting. In those times, being inside of a city was your best chance for survival. Outside of those walls would be a very, very scary place. There'd be thieves and bands of marauders, invading armies, wild animals. You'd be exposed to the elements, vigilante justice, right? It'd be a really, really scary place. But inside the walls of the city was a refuge. It was a safe place. There was food and water mostly readily available, right? It was a place where, where culture could thrive and a market system could develop. And people worked together uh, to create a, a, a space that was a little bit safe. And what this is telling us is that we build imaginary walls with our stuff, with our riches. Man, I'm guilty of that. I'm so guilty of trying to feel safe and secure inside my imaginary city with its high wall that I've built in my imagination. And the truth is, is that we build stuff we build things out of our stuff. We build walls out of our stuff. We build barriers, we build comforts. That may be your bank account balance, it, it may be your home, it may be even how big your car is. I was really convicted personally going through this and I was like, man, where, where are those things 
So I'll ask you, what are your walls? What are your imaginary walls that you have built? Where have you placed your treasure to find comfort and security and peace that will not benefit in the day of wrath? There's only one place we can go. There's only one safe place. And here's the awesome, awesome thing, is we run to the name of the Lord. You notice in that passage, it doesn't say we run to the Lord. It says we run to the name of the Lord. And that's a really important distinction because in the Bible, his name, the name of the Lord is always who he is. His qualities or attributes. It's always what he has done. When things feel really unsafe in your world, when life is really, really pressing down on you, when you're frightened, scared, or worried, when you can't sleep, when you're troubled, whenever the day of wrath happens to you, where do you go? Where do you run? You run to the name of the Lord. And let me tell you some things that I know about who God is. He's your Father. He knows everything. He is in control of everything, and he loves you everlastingly. He's your Father. He knows everything. He is in control of everything, and he loves you everlastingly. We do anything for you, and the good news is, is that he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if money is such a horrible God, how do we break the hold that it has on us? You've all heard the term, you reap what you sow. And this is an agriculture metaphor. And you know, growing up, I heard a lot of prosperity teachers jump up and down on this. It's like, hey, if you plant your seed, you're gonna get it back tenfold. And man, that, that is not what this is here at all. Think about it. If I put a seed in the ground, I'm going to get return that is fruit, right? That's what's being taught here. Seed is different from the fruit, and your fruit doesn't come back in the same way that you plant it. And so how does that look whenever we store up our treasures in heaven, whenever we give gifts that last long into eternity? And man, this is not easy. It takes practice. It, you know, it's not something that I can just wake up and say, money no longer has a hold on me. The truth is, is even though it's just paper and ink, we still can use it as a means to worship, right? We still, it's something that we can lay down, that we can disciple ourselves, and it's something that we have to do over and over and over again. And that's one way you can bring it into your heart, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, brings out this whole reap what you sow idea, and he's trying to get the Corinthian Christians at this time to, to be as generous as the Macedonian Christians. See, the Macedonians were poor, but they gave a tremendous amount of money to the church, to the poor, uh, to people who were sick and were hurting, but not so much the Corinthians. And he says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and each of us must give as he has decided in his heart. But then he also says this, and man, I, I love this. This is such a remarkable passage. In 2 Corinthians 8, he says, for you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus had everything setting in the eternal and loving bosom of his Father, and yet he left all of that behind to come to earth, to be born in the dirt. And what Paul is telling us here is that the ultimate example of generosity is Christ broken on the cross. For him to come to us in his infinite riches to a place where they whipped him, they pulled the flesh off of his body, they nailed him to a cross, they speared his side, they mocked him. The cross is the very definition of wealth distribution, the very definition of wealth distribution. And here's the beauty of the generosity of the cross. The truth is that every other treasure that you set your heart on is gonna require something of you. Every other treasure that you pursue will betray you. It will demand that you work for it by the sweat of your own brow. Jesus is the only treasure that could be sacrificed for you. He's the only treasure that did sacrifice for you. And that's the real security. It's knowing that the cross proves that Jesus will do anything for you. And then suddenly, as we take the cross into the center of our lives, money no longer becomes our identity. Money no longer has a divine quality and no longer holds us captive in our own lives. And instead, what money becomes is a way for us to worship God. It becomes a way for us to transact business by paying our bills or supporting loved ones or, you know, fill in the blank there. But what we lose in money when we pull Christ to the center is our identity in stuff. Remember, money may not be your idol, but it certainly will point you to whatever your idol is. And so, I, every time I talk to people about money and generosity, and man, it's about the heart, but there's also a practical side to that. And I always get the question, well, how much do I need to give? And, you know, Jesus told the rich young ruler, as we read out a little bit earlier, to give everything. In the Luke account, right after that, he meets Zacchaeus, and he proclaims salvation has come to this house after he gives half of everything he has and returns four times whatever he received in fraud, right? The truth is, is that I can't just give you a number and be satisfied. I can't just tell you to be more generous. It has to happen in your own heart. I grew up that, you know, the tithe was holy unto the Lord. The whole idea of 10%. Every Old Testament believer was required to give 10%. And if you've decided to give away 10%, Man, congratulations, you've achieved Old Testament standards. Or maybe not. Here's the deal, 10% is a great place to start. And by all means, there are people, maybe even in this room, that 10% is a huge, huge sacrifice. It may not even be doable for you in your current economic status. There are also people who 10% is far too little. 
And so while that's a good starting point, it's not a check on your heart. What we see in the gospel is that Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He didn't give 10% of his life. He didn't give 10% of his blood. He gave everything. He sacrificed for us. And what we should be doing is looking and examining our heart, and we should be giving away enough that it is a sacrifice. And what that looks like for you is something that you need to prayerfully consider for your own life and for you. There should be a measurable difference on how you live your life. You shouldn't be able to purchase all the stuff that your heart desires. And man, let me tell you, even if you could purchase everything that you wanted, if you had all the money in the world, it would be so empty. It would be so empty because that's not where real richness comes from. It's not where wealth is centered. So do something where as you give, you have to live your life differently. Vacations, clothing, purchases, the car I drive, the food I eat, fancy nice dinners, the concerts I see. Take the cross into the sin of your life until money just becomes money and we realize that everything we have, every good and perfect gift flows from the Father. I love this last quote from Tim Keller. He says it this way, a lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours, but God's. I wanna take you back to this picture of this huge stack of cash, sitting all alone in a vault. Remember what I said my approach to this used to be? It still is. It's not yours, it has no value. We actually call these banker Legos, by the way. Just stack them up on top of each other. At the end, money has no value. We talked about laying up our treasures where moth and rust do not destroy. Eventually, all this cash becomes dust. Eventually, it has no value. But what we have to do now is we have to do a lot of work to manage it and manage it right. And part of that is using cash as an instrument of worship on the altar of our life as we lay it down over and over and over again. If you own the whole earth, and everything in the earth was made of gold, it would still not compare to the riches that have been so generously bestowed upon us. And it still wouldn't purchase the salvation that Jesus purchased with us, the generosity of the cross. Hey, if you're struggling to manage finances, I know that this is probably a really difficult sermon to hear. You may even in your heart be like, hey, I want, I want to do better at this, but there's absolutely no way. We have resources here. If you'd like to talk to me, if you'd like to talk to, to Pastor Pat, both of us would love to sit down with you and talk about what it means to shape your money or your resources in the right way. Um, if you need help with budget, man, I did that for years. If you just have questions about what that looks like, do not hesitate to reach out to one of us, all right? There's help here available for you. Would you pray with me in closing? Jesus, we thank you that... Um, you paid the price for us, that you have lavished us with riches that we could not even comprehend. We pray that we could become a more generous people, that we could live sacrificially, and Jesus, day by day, bit by bit, we could learn 
how to let go of money and its corruption, the way that it shapes us, and instead surrender those things in our lives to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.